if you have a hospital that is 100% full and it's filled with 100% COVID patients and you have COVID patients waiting in your emergency room, then it could be. But that's not what you have. In most situations, you have hospitals that may have 15, 20% at the highest almost of COVID patients. So most hospitals that are 100% full, the great majority of their patients are not COVID patients. Welcome back to the interview podcast on the Y Milbank Podcast Network from Milbank, South Dakota. This is Craig Weinberg. If you like this show, you can support it so we can continue these conversations. Go to theinterviewpodcast.org and click on the Donate Today button, and you can choose the value that you receive from this show. You get to choose what that looks like as a form of dollars and send it our way. We appreciate it. Thank you so much for all of your support and listening and sharing this on to your friends so we can continue these conversations with people from around the world. Today is no exception. Dr. Scott Jensen, candidate for governor of the state of Minnesota, is with us today. The COVID pandemic, this from Dr. Scott's website, the COVID pandemic has pushed Dr. Jensen into the international spotlight. He's appeared on top-rated shows and often been a lone voice calling for the measurement of the impact of government-imposed draconian measures versus the impact of the virus. Scott has been a voice for the voiceless, tirelessly demanding peer review and updating of government models as facts emerged. Transparency in the completion of death certificates and recognition and calls to balance and measure the effects of lockdowns and closures. DrScottJensen.com, D-R-S-C-O-T-T-J-E-N-S-E-N.com is where you can find more. Hope you enjoy this chat we had today. Let's jump right into it. Thanks a lot for listening. Dr. Scott Jensen, uh, thank you for taking time and welcome to the interview. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. You are a primary uh, family practice um, doctor. Is that correct? That's correct. And I spent a year studying dermatology and plastic surgery under a Bush Fellowship program in the late 1990s. And that's become a a special interest of mine. So I do a lot of skin surgery. In March of this year, I believe you um, made the choice with your wife that you would uh, seek to remove the current governor in Minnesota and replace him with yourself. Um, talk a little bit about that, uh, how you got to that point. Yeah, we made the decision together after about six months of soul searching, and we made the decision last Christmas morning. We got up, we looked at each other, shrugged our shoulders and said, we can't stand on the sidelines. I'd served a term in the Senate, and there's a lot about the political process that's nauseating. And I was ready to be done, but COVID-19, pushed me to the front of the line. And I think with COVID, we saw so many abuses of our political system that I believe it has motivated millions of Americans to engage like never before. And my wife and I were no exception. So we made the decision, we're gonna run for governor. We've been encouraged hard for six months. And so in March we launched and we wanted to keep it if you will, in perspective, and we wanted to enjoy it, but we weren't sure if we would be able to. And I'm glad to report that 
after nine months and a tremendously intense schedule. Both Mary and I have enjoyed it. We've talked about that a lot. <laughs> you, you don't regret your decision yet? <laughs> we don't. We've, we've gotten a chance to meet so many good people. I think that our view right now is we've had enough with the professional politicians and the broken government. We're going to take it back and we're going to do it because we're going to walk alongside all these hundreds of thousands of good Minnesotans. Mm -hmm. And that's our attitude. And we've, we've enjoyed it. So you state that, you know, politics as usual is, you know, not ideal and kind of sickening. Um, how do you go into that position and not become part of the same problem over time? Good question. I think for some, it may be impossible. I think part of the reason that I can do it is because I'm no spring chicken. I'm 67 years old. I've been blessed beyond any dream of what I would have thought in my life might happen. I'm not addicted to approval. I have always had a certain skeptical approach to things. If someone says something, I'm frequently going to be the person that's going to ask two or three questions to follow up on it. My heroes are people like Socrates and the folks who ask the questions. Jesus of Nazareth gave way more questions than answers. And I think that's how we get our arms around things. So for me, when I made the decision to run, I found that my skepticism and my passionate desire to make certain that I understood the context of what was going on would show through. And I think that's why it's it's been sort of fun for me because I, I find the intellectual stimulation um, challenging and uh, gratifying. <laughs> yeah. How, how do you, or I, I should say, what makes you, what will be different? Let's say in, the, in November you win, you become the next governor of Minnesota. Um, how are you different from Walls going forward? I'm transparent to a fault. I would far rather make the mistake of being too transparent and saying, whoops, maybe I shouldn't have said that publicly, but I'd rather be that transparent person. I resist groupthink actively. I mm -hmm. think groupthink is one of the worst things that happens in politics. And I think Governor Walls has gotten absolutely caught up in a silo of his own making. And it makes it difficult for him to see that some of his policy decisions haven't worked. I have been unflinching in the face of criticism. When I first declared foul when the Minnesota Department of Health and the CDC told us that they're going to encourage us to change the way we do death certificates so that we can more readily and more casually record COVID-19 as a cause of death. I cried foul. I had no idea that my protests would be ignored and would simply lead to my license being investigated five different times. But I didn't flinch, and, so and I won't. But I mean, you got removed from social media I, on, at some level, I think, for I for, for speaking out, correct? We had 300,000 followers on TikTok, and I got kicked off without any explanation. We went back on TikTok, got up to 75,000 followers, and got kicked off again. For We've what? Facebook, for what? I mean, what they didn't tell you, but what did you do that you think is the reason? Well, the first time we got kicked off was I had come out with a uh, TikTok, basically 
criticizing 60 Minutes because they had done a smear job on Governor Ron DeSantis out of Florida. And even Democrats had called out 60 Minutes for mm-hmm. doing a smear job. And I simply said that there was no place in it for that. And I thought that 60 Minutes should apologize, and they didn't. But the day I put that out was the day I was notified by TikTok that I was done. Really? Now, I don't know if that was a spe- I don't know if that was a specific TikTok post or if it was another one. But the language they give you mm-hmm. in terms of what they might use for a basis is so broad. Yeah. You could throw a snowball at a tree and that <laughs> right. might get kicked off. Yeah. Um, according to uh, a KSTP uh, in Minneapolis, they did a poll that says 50, what was it? 55% of Minnesotans approve of Governor Wall's uh, handling of the pandemic. Um, is that a correct poll? Like, do you think it is the majority of Minnesotans, are they on board with the, what's happened over the last year and a half? I think that question reflected more of a, now that we're at this point in time, mm-hmm. how are you feeling about Governor Wall's management of the pandemic? And I think a lot of people say, we're okay with it. We can live with it. But I think if they were asked, what do you think of the lockdowns of private businesses? What do you think of the lock-ins of dying nursing home patients who are dying of COVID because there was an active pipeline of disease created by government policies? Or what do you think about the locking out of kids from schools? Or what do you think about the mandate for masks? These kinds of questions coming up, I think you'd see a different overall flavor of satisfaction with Governor Wall's performance. But I think when you look at the the 30,000 foot view, I think a lot of people saying, well, I'm glad where we're here now where we're at. But I also think that as some of the collateral damage that starts to bubble up and be seen by the public, mm-hmm. as that occurs, I think you're going to see people saying, hmm, maybe we didn't need to do this, or maybe we shouldn't have done that. And I think in a, in a debate forum, it might also be an opportunity to point out that there were other policies that would likely have worked better. But I think here's a question I would ask you. If you look at that poll, when you pit Governor Walls against any of the Republican candidates, Governor Walls didn't get to 50%. Mm. I think that says something. And I think it also says something that I had the highest favorability rating of all the candidates, including Tim Walls, when it came to conservative voters and independent voters. What's that percentage of the population, do you think? What's the makeup? Well, it's all over the map, but I think a lot of people think that there's somewhere around 40% Democrats, Mm -hmm. 30% Republicans, and 30% independents, but it depends upon who you're talking to. Yeah. Um, What has Tim Walls done right over the last year and a half? Hmm. I think he's shared with the public that there's things we don't know. I think he had indicated a willingness to let go of his emergency powers, but he had done it in sort of a negotiating way. So that sort of rankled me there too. Okay. On that, because I I saw that. Uh, And what came to my mind when that all happened was this is a reelection campaign product. Th- th- this is exactly a, a tool for marketing 
for the next election. Do you see it that way? I do. I do. And I think there have been some people saying, why doesn't Governor Wall step in again? Because he certainly could pull it off, if you will. And I think a lot of it is, and he even said it in an interview perhaps about a month ago, he said, well, we're not going to step in now with any kind of emergency powers because there would be political fallout. <laughs> I thought it was a remarkable yeah. camp statement that he made. Yeah, and no one saw that, or no, no one cares apparently. Um, uh, you know, going back to March roughly 2020, um, Minnesota was one of the first uh, states around the Midwest part that that I was watching that really uh, jumped in and big, big push, 15 days. We just give us, be good people and give us 15 days and we'll knock this thing out. And then we're good. It's all gold. We only need 15 days. Um, was that honest, do you think? Or was that because uh, everything was unknown? Or were there some ulterior motive that they had, that they knew about at the time? Well, if an ulterior motive is truly ulterior, I probably wouldn't be privy to it. But I would say that Minnesota was basically in a place where we all knew it was uncharted territory. Mm -hmm. And so when Governor Walls asked us to do that, I think everybody was pretty much okay. But where it didn't pass the smell test was the haphazard manner of identifying which businesses were safe and which weren't, hmm. which businesses were essential and which weren't. And the fact that there was even some vacillating in the first couple of days after his emergency powers declaration, where like landscaping businesses were first okay, then not okay, then okay. So I think it became very clear that this policy decision that Governor Walls was making was not devoid of political machinations. Do you think that just came about like after getting through into that first 15 days, it was like, holy cow, we just don't know. So we're going to have to just keep extending this because we don't know. I think there was an element of that. Yeah. I think that the moving the goalposts was not necessarily something that was intended. I think that putting the goalposts of flattening the curve and not overwhelming healthcare facilities were honest objectives. I think when the goalposts were moved, I think they were done so in a way that it was as if Governor Walls and his team were hoping that nobody would notice. Mm. And that's happened throughout the pandemic. We've yeah. seen data points that were reported regularly all of a sudden disappear because those data points that the Department of Health were, was reporting, were reporting no longer showed a terrifying, if you will, trajectory. Mm -hmm. So the decision was made, okay, well, we better not lead with that. We'll get rid of that one. And we'll, we'll put another one up that shows uh, a sharper curve or a, a more impressive bar draft. Mm -hmm. So in, in a broader sense, medically, um, it seems as though the response to COVID, maybe globally, doesn't seem to be about health. It, because it's such a singular focus on what the options are to be used. And that was one of the things I think, uh, if I remember right, that you got uh, in trouble for, in quotes, um, was the, the concept that there may be more options to treat this virus than just one thing, one experimental treatment at the, point, at the time. Um, can it be about health? 
if the only thing on the table is one very narrow use um, treatment? Well, perhaps if you're a policymaker, you can convince yourself of that, but certainly not in the public's eye. In the public's eye, this cannot be about health. There is too much going on that just doesn't add up. For instance, the vaccine mandate. A year prior to the vaccine mandates becoming this popular notion, there was a discussion about not vaccine passports, but immunity passports. Mm -hmm. If you got the disease and recovered and had antibodies, should you be granted special privileges? Right. Perhaps you could go without a mask or whatever. And the resounding answer was no, it would be ethically wrong. It would be immoral. Fast forward a year later, now it's not immoral. That's one. Two is the notion of discounting immunity coming from natural recovery from a disease mm-hmm. also didn't add up. For 50 years, we have been talking to the population about measles and various infectious diseases and how if you've had the disease, you don't need to demonstrate that you've gotten the vaccine. That's another one. And then the pre-hospital treatment programs, where all of a sudden, not only was there this paucity of encouragement to get your immune system stronger with perhaps vitamin C and D and zinc and quercetin, these things weren't on the table. Nobody was talking about them. They were just talking about the fear and the overwhelming situation that the policymakers were, were facing. And then we saw things like hydroxychloroquine become disparaged. We saw ivermectin taken off the marketplace. We saw budesonide, an expensive drug. Excuse me, budesonide, uh, if you will, sort of hemmed and hawed about. But then we saw remdesivir, an mm-hmm. expensive option, sort of celebrated as the do-all, end-all. This will take mm-hmm. care of it. And it took so long for health officials to come forward and say, well, remdesivir does have some nephrotoxicity, some yeah. problems with kidneys. So I think all of these things together made it very clear to the public that this wasn't about optimizing our health. Mm-hmm. It was about the government's in charge. It's a power play. This was not some existential threat to the human race. And yet, governments around the world were not going to relinquish their control and power. And that's where they lost the trust with the public mm-hmm. in a huge So, I mean, it, it seems so strange that if, if this is such an unknown, scary virus that is going to kill the world, we're all going to die, every possible option on or off label should be, I mean, you should be able to try, throw everything at the wall, see what sticks. But at this point, even now, it still seems like that's not an acceptable option. The only option you get is uh, a jab. That's it. There's no treatment. There's no pre, there's no uh, prophylaxis. There's nothing you can do to make your your life, um, your body healthier. And that just doesn't feel like medicine to me. You're actually being sort of kind about it because it's way worse than that. Yeah. This this has nothing to do with medicine. Medicine is about sharing information, trying to get out in front of it, trying to optimize the, uh, the health of the organism, whether you're a veterinarian like my wife dealing with a dog or a cat or a physician like me trying to work with kids and moms and dads and, and, and the elderly. We didn't get out in front of this and help people understand that these were the 
specific vulnerable people, and they really needed to get on vitamin C, D, zinc, and group of obesity people, obese people, they really needed to get off the couch and start taking walks. And and this group that was using tobacco, they really needed to get serious about reducing their tobacco consumption by at least 50%, if not stopping it completely. These kinds of things didn't happen. And then if you go the next step, you know, you want to treat early in a disease, you never want to wait until a disease gets so bad that it's overwhelming. Mm -hmm. And yet we didn't have that. We saw that quickly taken away from us. Then we saw this, if you will, draconian policies of six feet isn't enough social distancing. Maybe it should be 15 feet. If people are outside breathing heavy, it should be 32 feet. Then we had the masks. Then we had one mask isn't enough to do two, maybe three. Then we had kids should wear masks, even though they can't wear them because they're only two years old and they're constantly pulling them off. I mean, it went, it became literally a comedy of errors. Mm -hmm. And there will come a day where we'll look back on it and say, what the hell were we thinking? Yeah. So well, what can be the long game here? <laughs> the long game could be so many things. <laughs> the long game could be politically motivated, move to power. Mm. The long game could be bureaucracies wanting to grow and usurp uh, more control that heretofore had been in legislative arenas. The long game could be people interested in having the federal government be able to overreach and get away with it once, which will make it easier to get away with that second time. The long game could be so many things. And we didn't even get into the, the real meat of what are called the conspiracy theories. <laughs> right. We don't have that much time today. But um, I, I saw an article on uh, Minnesota Public Radio News today that uh, COVID, there was a, a story or an ad put out by a bunch of doctors in Minnesota saying the hospital system is overwhelmed because of COVID patients in Minnesota. You're a doctor. Is that the case? If you have a hospital that is 100% full and it's filled with 100% COVID patients and you have COVID patients waiting in your emergency room, then it could be. But that's not what you have. Hmm. In most situations, you have hospitals that may have 15, 20% at the highest, almost, of COVID patients. So most hospitals that are 100% full, the great majority of their patients are not COVID patients. If you look at the ICUs, I mean, this is where the data that's being presented from the Department of Health is, is just not trustworthy. We have approximately the capacity for 10,000 beds in Minnesota. Mm -hmm. We have the capacity within 72 to 96 hours of hospitals around Minnesota being able to convert, make adjustments so that we could get to a total of somewhere around 3,000 ICU beds. Governor Walls has acknowledged this previously. Then you have to take, okay, what are all the COVID-19 patients in ICUs? What is that number? And then you have to take all the COVID patients in regular hospital beds. Mm-hmm. What is that number? And you have to divide the, in the, the COVID patients in regular beds by 10,000, in ICU by 3,000. Mm. That's when we really start to get a clear picture. But we're not being given that information very readily. You've got to look hard. And right now, I don't have the specific numbers in front of me, but I know that without question, um, there's, I don't know if there are any hospitals that have anywhere near 50% of their occupancy devoted to COVID-19 patients. So what's the motivation for a news outlet 
and 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 the government to publish that story well you'd have to ask the news outlets because it's never really fair to try to pick out someone else's motivation they have a, they have their own but i guess you can conjecture and i think that it certainly seems like newspapers are in the business of selling newspapers and you don't sell newspapers mm-hmm. if you don't have something sort of sensational yeah i mean we've had we had 80,000 people die of influenza in 2018 but i don't remember any and maybe there were a few but i don't remember any huge color photos above the fold on the front page of the star tribune showing how devastating it is yeah. to have severe influenza with tubes coming out of your nose, your your <laughs> neck veins, yeah. and all these apparatus that scares the snot out of people. We see that with regularity. Fact of the matter is we saw some news sources using stock photos of, here, look at this hospital situation in New York. And it was, I think, a hospital situation in Italy. So <laughs> we have seen a tremendous yeah. willingness to be far less than demonstrating journalistic integrity. Without proper leadership change, does Minnesota become the California or the New York of the Midwest? I think we've already become uh, the California of the Midwest. I think if you compare us to Wisconsin and Iowa and North Dakota and South Dakota, whether you're looking at the amount of average dollars dis- uh Uh, distributed uh, per welfare recipient. If you look at the uh, amount of money we spend on average per student in K through 12 public education, if you look at our lack of achievement in terms of trying to meet the goals we set in education, you do all these things. It's pretty hard to say that we're not the California of the Midwest. And then you look at the fact that we've gotten hooked on to the California car mandates, and we're going to have farmers And uh, people like to hunt and fish, having to buy, not what they want to buy, but buying in terms of trucks and vehicles, what the government decides the auto dealers can sell. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't think it's about becoming. I think the the pertinent question is, how can we stop this? Yeah. Uh, Speaking of education, what would you do, I guess, first uh, to improve the education system within Minnesota? Fund the kids. Quit, quit funding the broken institutions. Uh, a rising tide raises all ships. And I think that we need to have school choice. We need to blow our system up in the way where we give so many more options to kids because they don't all learn the same way. Not every kid reads from, learns best from reading in a book or reading a, a computer screen. I think we need to make certain that people who learn best hands-on have plenty of opportunities. We're not doing that. I think we need to let parents uh, have, if you will, uh, the lead role in where is their kid going to get a foundational education. We need to ban critical race theory. We need to realize that critical race theory isn't the first and it won't be the last um, effort on the part of people to, if you will, uh, totally change our education system from foundational to indoctrinational. I mean, George Orwell did a masterful job of writing about this, you know, 35 years or 50 years, I should say, probably before we saw some of this happening. But we've seen common core and profiles of learning. Now we've seen critical race theory. There's a movement out there on the part of the far left that uh, seems to want to somehow accelerate a hatred for America. 
And I don't get it. I mean, I don't think America's ever said yeah. we're perfect, but is there another place you'd rather live? <laughs> right. If, if there is, what's stopping you? Yeah. Are, uh, is dollars the answer? Just throw more money at it? Or, or is it um, no. dollars is it deeper are not than the that? Answer. Say that? The recent legislative session gave K-12 through education one of the biggest bumps in money that they've ever given. And that, that to me, feels like a job well done mm-hmm. kind of response. And right. I don't think that should have happened. I think you got to tighten it up and you've got to have more, if you will, accountability. And one of the best ways to do that is you've got to tap into the private sector and let them weigh in on this. And I think what you'll find is you'll find much more achievement. Right now, you know, there's three kinds of leaders. You've got your avoiders, you've got your aggressors, and you've got your achievers. Uh, we need to get uh, the power and the control into the hands of the achievers, the people who say, I'm not interested in saying the right words. I'm not interested in doing this or that, but we're sure not going to avoid it. Teddy Roosevelt said, the, you know, make, in times of making a tough decision, the best thing you can do is the right thing. The next best thing you can do is the wrong thing. But the worst thing you can do is nothing. nothing. Yeah. In, in so many situations, that's what we've been doing. Is part of the problem the schools are admin heavy? Or, or is that necessary to facilitate the system that's in place? Two different questions. Uh, kind of, they, yeah. <laughs> I, think, I think some school districts are probably administratively heavier than they need to be. But I would say that the bigger problem there is that the administrators are not doing enough to connect the parents and the teachers and supporting the teachers to get the distractible Johnny out of the classroom How so much? that 27 kids mm-hmm. can learn what they're capable of learning. I think what we're seeing is I think teachers are feeling abandoned. And I think teachers are feeling like they're not being allowed to do what they went into teaching to do, and that's to touch kids' lives. Well, how much of that do you think is is societal and cultural in America, where we have kind of looked at education, public education, as um, quasi-daycare as a way? Because both parents, uh, in order to, to maintain the lifestyle that they've chosen to live, um, must work two jobs, and so they both have to be out. And so the kids have to go somewhere. Well, the, the system has been set up that... Uh, yes, kids from almost birth now, depending on who you listen to, uh, belong in school until they're 18, and then they got to go to more school after that. Um, and that becomes a uh, a daycare system. I mean, how many programs have been started in the last five, 10 years that are after-school programs that are designed to manage the children after school while mom and dad are still at work? Um, is this a societal issue that that almost has to be fixed before we can really reevaluate our education system? I think the fix has to come from the stakeholders. And the stakeholders in this situation would be, for the most part, uh, parents, parents, families, yeah. students. I think that many times you'll see mission creep, mm-hmm. where perhaps the original mission was a foundational education. And then it becomes, well, we're also going to do this. We're going to teach you sensitivity training. And we're going to add in um, some exposure to uh, sexuality. And then we're going to add on some some meals because we're not sure if people are meals. Then we're going to add on daycare at the end of the day. And, well, we better have it at the front end, too, because some parents start working at 730 and school doesn't start till 830. And I think what you see is this mission creep. I think we're going to have to, oftentimes you have to go back to the beginning. C.S. Lewis once said, 
if you're doing long division and you make an error, you usually can't shoot across right. and fix it. You've yeah. got to walk it back mm -hmm. and find where you made your error and then move forward once again. Right. I think that's what we need to do. And I think we need to put the, the onus of responsibility on the parents. And I think that's why government needs to fund the kids because that will be the most powerful motivator for parents to take a, long, a, a more leading role and to feel empowered and also to see the local school districts be more responsive to the parents. Is standardized yeah. testing um, part of the problem to, to try to ensure that every child is at the exact same point at the exact same time? I think the testing program has uh, gone out of whack. And I think that, again, we have to ask ourselves, what are we trying to do here? And now I think that you've got both both sides um, bickering with one another, blaming each other. And I think we've, we've lost our way. Uh, we talked about uh, the government, governor's emergency powers a little bit ago. Can you think of a time where, uh, as they were set before he negotiated away his, you know, need, ability to use them on his own, can you think of a time where it's necessary? It, it would be necessary for the governor to have that option. I can't give you any specific instances in the history of Minnesota, but there probably have been multiple. But certainly, I can tell you that if a third of Minnesota was underwater because of devastating spring floods and uh, people's economy uh, was devastated and the food supply was absolutely fractured and people were starving to death and there were no pills and medications and not enough healthcare and things like that. And perhaps there was rioting in those cities uh, where they could riot and uh, maybe plunder. I could certainly see a situation where emergency powers would be necessary. Is that now hampered with the, the change that was made last summer? Well, I don't think there was any substantive change made to emergency powers last summer. I think what you saw was a negotiation. And in order for the uh, governor to get what he wanted, mm -hmm. I think postured and said, well, you know, yeah, I will give up emergency powers. And he was going to do it August 1st. And the Republicans needed a victory. They needed a win. So they negotiated hard for July 1st. But, uh, and then they ran a victory lap, which is typically what politicians do. But I think that um, we're paying a price for poorly written legislation. When you ask about emergency powers, that's one thing. But when you talk about an emergency in light of a public health crisis, mm. there, I think we've gone off the rails because a public health crisis has so much more difficulty in being defined. So you've seen literally one man take over the entire state of Minnesota for more than a year and continue to tell Minnesota why it's so critically necessary for him to do this, even as we watch him slowly use the emergency powers as a tool of negotiation in the legislative process. So I think this is where we can say with clarity that public health emergencies are dramatically different than tornadoes and fires and floods. And we're going to have to be a little bit more discriminating and a little wiser because, frankly, the original emergency powers that were written, I think in the 1960s, uh, were modified 40, 50 years later and not in a very good way. Mm. And so we're paying the price now. Is it government's responsibility to ensure the public's health and safety? If you go to the Constitution, we talk about ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, and promote the general welfare. I think we always have to lean into the Constitution as much as, mm -hmm. as we can. Um, when you use the word insure, that gets 
dangerously close to guarantee. Government can't guarantee what it can't guarantee. So when we look at that kind of a question, we have to ask ourselves, what can be guaranteed? On one level, life is a fragile thing. On another level, a supply chain can be a fragile thing. Mm -hmm. There may not be a way for government to guarantee that supply chains won't be interrupted. But there are certainly ways for government to make decisions and put in place policies that won't add gas on the fire of already fractured supply chains, that idea of unintended consequences. So I, I think that government has performed poorly during this pandemic. And the only good thing, or maybe one of the few good things out of this is we will have the chance to learn and hopefully we can get wiser for the future. But along the way, we have devastated so many people's lives and caused many people to die just the worst of deaths. You are on the campaign trail right now. Um, where can people go to find your information and see what they can do to uh, either help support or run as far as they can away from you? <laughs> where can they find that info? DrScottJensen.com. D-R-S-C-O-T-T-J-E-N-S-E-N.com. And if you have any interest in becoming a delegate for us, just go drscottjensen.com slash join the fight without any spaces, because I'm not going to be the darling choice of the political establishment. I've well, made it very clear. I don't kiss the ring. Well, and according to uh, the straw poll that just came out, you were th you came in third in that behind Gazelka and uh, was it Benson? Yes. Um, what does that straw poll mean? Does it mean anything or is it just something to do? You've got 300 people from around the state who are historically and traditionally very involved with the Republican Party. They might be termed activists. Mm -hmm. So these are people that through the years have had a chance to build relationships with one another. And I've not participated in the state central other than a meeting in October and this one. So I haven't had the chance to build relationships uh, like uh, Senators Benson and Gazelka. So I congratulate them on their uh, performance. Mm -hmm. But I also think that the relationships they've built through the years probably served them well. Many of the folks there, it was the first time I had a chance to meet them. So I think it was important for me to participate. And I don't think it's any kind of a prediction of the future. But I do think that Senators Gazalka and Benson um, worked hard to prepare for that event. And uh, I suspect that they have a, a mix of uh, satisfaction or um, wishing it had been even stronger for them. Do you need traditional media to win? I don't know how you can really rely on traditional media to win, because I don't think a conservative who's willing to speak a contrarian narrative is going to get any help from traditional media. Yeah, but, but you can spend money. You can throw money at advertising, right? Yeah. And, I don't and, know but, how <laughs> but I mean, that's kind of assumed. Like, that's what you're supposed to do, right? That was one of the, the uh, points of disdain back in 16 when Donald Trump won the presidency, was he didn't follow the rules, in quotes. Um, yes. And it, you've been likened to him in that sense, that you aren't necessarily following the traditional rules of... Uh, of advertising in the media. Um, 
do you see yourself uh, going down that road more or will you try to stay into the directly with the people? We, we will be with the people. This is a groundswell movement. Otherwise we lose. Hmm. This is why my wife and I made the decision to run because I honestly think that I am the best Republican candidate that can beat Tim Walls. We are transparent. We resist groupthink. Uh, we trailblaze. We've been unflinching in the face of controversy. We've not been addicted to approval. I don't run victory laps that I didn't earn. I am a non-politician. I'm a maverick. And I think that that's what Minnesotans are saying. That's what we need. The career politician is not serving us well. The system is broken. I'm a career family doc. It's time to solve some real problems. Thanks again, Dr. Scott, for hanging out with us for a little bit today. Once again, drscottjensen.com if you're interested in checking out more about him as he runs for governor of Minnesota. This is the interview podcast. Thank you all for listening. And don't forget, if you want to help support the show, you can go to theinterviewpodcast.org, click on the Donate Today button, and choose the amount of value you received out of the show and send it our way. Thanks a lot. Have a great day. If you want to see the other shows that, that originate out of this studio, go to whymillbank.com. Click on the podcast button and they're all listed there. Thanks so much for listening. Have a wonderful day and we will see you on the next one.